Well, good morning. It's good to be back here in Brookside, and uh, it's uh, especially great to worship with you this morning. I, uh, I think I'm a week late in saying this to you, but let me just go ahead and say it. Happy birthday. Uh, one year birthday last week. For those of you who are newer, uh, we celebrated our first year anniversary last week, and uh, it is great to be here on the week following. It was only appropriate for uh, Bill to be here on that big day, and uh, it's great to be with you here to be able to worship. And for those of you that have uh, invested over the last year, let me just say thank you for the work that you've done in uh, building uh, Christ community in this community. And we are grateful for the investment that you made. I know it's been, uh, I hope it's been rewarding for you. It's been rewarding for me to see God at work here in this community and particularly um, through each of you. So let me just say thank you. If you're new here with us, we are walking through the Bible uh, this year and uh, both in Sunday mornings uh, as well as taking time together as a congregation to read the Bible. Uh, you may have seen, if you were coming in, you may have seen an Open Here logo. If you're new and want to jump in and join us, we invite you to that. You can find more information about it on our website. Uh, we are committing to this work of daily Bible reading and uh, the, both the discipline and the joy that comes from it. And so we invite you to join us in that. We're, we're walking through the Bible where now we find ourselves in John 21 this morning. The 21st chapter of John. Let me, so let me set a little context. This is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. He's now, as, as we heard the scripture read this morning, he's appeared twice to the disciples. Uh, he's had some other appearances, some other resurrection appearances, but twice to the disciples as a group, one without the disciple Thomas, uh, but two other times uh, uh, to the disciples as a group. And this morning, we get to peek in on this amazing seashore experience. I knew if I wrote that in there, I was going to mess it up. This amazing seashore experience. Hopefully, thankfully, there weren't seashells uh, in this, but uh, this amazing seashore experience. And especially get to peek into this uniqueness of the experience for this sad and broken um, person named Peter. And although it might seem to us like there would be a more efficient and effective way to get the job done, I think this morning that we'll discover a foundational truth, a truth that we know and experience firsthand, and that Jesus uses broken people to build his church. Jesus builds his church with broken people. Before we dig in and look at God's word together, would you just, let's pause for a moment and ask God to speak to us. Let's pray together. Lord, we simply come to you this morning asking you to open our eyes, our ears, soften our hearts. Uh, We want to hear from you. We're amazed at the way you do that. We don't take that for granted. And so, Lord, we invite that work in our lives now today. Lord, we need you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, thank you, worship team, for uh, Doug and Oliver and Kimberly, John. Uh, Thanks for leading us. Uh, If you didn't hear, uh, John and Kylie had their baby this week. Uh, Quigley was leading worship right up here for the first song, which was very cool. Uh, It was fun to... I don't know, is that worship training, John? Do you just put him near the piano and, and uh, hopefully it kind of begins to soak in? Um, I appreciate you guys serving and leading. I don't know if you listen to music this way, but I am one of the, I'm a music repeater. So I get a new piece of music, usually a new album, and I listen to it over and over and over again. 
uh, anybody. Maybe it's just I'm too lazy to change, uh, but it just plays over and over again. And uh, sometimes, although I hate to admit it, sometimes this can last for a month or more. In my car, on my iPhone, it's just repeating over and over. Well, for some reason, Sharon and the boys find this especially annoying. Uh, and, and especially when it's Michael Jackson month. That uh, <laughs> tends to drive them uh, crazy. But for you, thankfully, this week, it was, or this month, it's been all sons and daughters. I bought this album that we heard this song, uh, Brokenness Aside, um, just a few weeks ago, and it has been playing over and over again. It's an album called Season One. And I'm sure the worship team is thankful that it wasn't Michael Jackson month because it would have been awkward working in Man in the Mirror. I mean, that would have been really strange how to do that. Um, Thank you for laughing at my jokes, by the way. (laughs) Brokenness Aside is such a beautiful song. I find it both haunting and hopeful, sad and happy, the way things are and the way things ought to be. Starts off with these lyrics Will your grace run out if I let you down? Because all I know how to do is run. I can so relate to those words. And I have a hunch that you can too. But if there was ever a person who must have had these lyrics on repeat, it was the Apostle Peter. And I'm guessing at some point in this journey where we open John 21 that Peter was pretty sure that God's grace had run out. So if you want to follow along with me this morning, if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn to John 21. We're going to walk through there and I think hopefully bring this familiar story to life. Let me just catch us up just a little bit of where we are, especially as it relates to Peter. Maybe you're familiar with him, but maybe you're not. Let me just give you a little snapshot of Peter. Peter, you might remember, um, he has one of these confusing names in the Bible, by the way. Um, at John, in, in John, he, we're first introduced to him in John uh, chapter 1, and his name is Simon. Uh, Jesus changes his name to Cephas, which John tells us actually means Peter which, by the way, means rock. So you following along with this? So it's Simon. Jesus changed his name to Cephas, which means Peter, which means rock. So which is it? Is it Simon, Cephas, or Peter? I don't know what we're going to do. So, so today, I'm just going to call him Peter. So you're going to see in the scriptures, he's referred to as many different ways, even a combination of them. Sometimes you'll hear him called Simon Peter. But mainly we know is him as Peter. So let's stick with that today. Peter was a fisherman by profession, He was a faithful disciple of John the Baptist before he was introduced to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And he quickly became a part of the inner circle, Jesus' inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He's the kind of guy that you would describe as a natural leader. If he worked in your company, it's likely that he would lead meetings frequently or be the person who would quickly rise to some sort of leadership position. People would always be looking to him for, for direction. And if we read about him in the scriptures, we often find that he becomes the spokesman for the disciples and actually kind of becomes known for blurting out things that maybe he shouldn't have said or 
saying them before he, was, he really thought about it. Like the time we read about this week, if you're reading through in the whole story plan, you read this week where Jesus gathered his disciples together just, and began to serve them by washing their feet. And Peter says, no, 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 there's no way you're going to do that. You're not doing that to me. To which Jesus sort of rebukes him and says, well, if you don't let me wash your feet, you're not with us. And Peter, oh, wash my feet, go ahead, wash my hands, you can wash my head, you know, give me the sponge bath, I'll take it right now, just what, whatever you want to do. Matthew once wrote about the time that Peter was, um, when Jesus told Peter that he was going to suffer and be killed on the third day that he'd be raised again, he'd be raised from the dead. And Peter said, or Peter said to Jesus, he said, no, no, I'm not letting that happen to you. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, get thee behind me, Satan. I would say that's probably a day Peter would categorize as not a good day. And then there's a time Jesus gathered his disciples for the final meal. And he told them he would be departing them. And at this point, it was clear Peter was having trouble connecting the dots. And he said, Lord, where are you going? I, I, I'm going to go with you. And Jesus says to him, no, there's, you can't go with me. But later you're going to follow me. And what Peter must have thought was a bold leadership move, he, he blurted out, of course I can follow you. I'm the most committed one here. I'm the leader. I'll lay down my life for you. And you can sort of see at this moment see Jesus releasing a big sigh. He says, Peter, you don't know what you're talking about. You're going to deny me three times before morning comes. And as we heard read this morning, it happened. This bold leader denied Jesus. Denied he even knew him. And just in case you've never thought about the weight of this, just think with me for a moment. Jesus was raised from the dead just as he had told Peter. And at this point in the story, he's appeared, as we said, twice to the disciples, once without Thomas. And in these two accounts, Peter is present. But there is no record of Peter speaking or Jesus speaking to Peter. We know he's there, but not a peep. And as we looked at last week, it almost seems as if Jesus makes a second trip just to come back to talk to Thomas. He sort of have to wonder as he's, he addresses Thomas personally if Peter is wondering, what about me? I mean, I really blew it. I thought you said you were going to use me to build the church. And so when we come to John 21, with this weight piled on Peter's shoulders, you can sort of make better sense of this statement in verse 3. I'm going fishing. And I don't know, this week as I studied the Scripture and saw it fresh from this weight that must have been on Peter, 
I wonder if the disciples at this point had this fresh memory of their friend Judas and his suicide in their mind when they said to him, we're we're going with you. We'll go with you. And sort of don't want to leave Peter alone. Now remember, these guys were fishermen. So it's not that unusual what they're doing here. Jesus had told them he would meet them in Galilee, so they're waiting for him. Might as well go fishing while we're waiting. But what does seem unusual about the story, and should for the reader, I think John intended it for it to stand out to us, is that they, caught, they fished all night long and they caught nothing. As in zilch, nada, not one fish. Now, if they were discouraged before they went out, just imagine how they felt now. Can't you just hear their self-talk? Let's see, we left fishing to go follow Jesus. Now he's gone, and now we've forgotten how to fish. But just as dawn is breaking, they're about, it says that Scripture tells us they're 100 yards from the shore. So just imagine about the length of a football field away from the shore. And they see a guy standing there on the land, and he yells out to them, have you guys caught anything? <laughs> now, just a picture. This is early morning, so maybe fog's coming up. It's, they're 100 yards away. The light's not quite right. They can't see who it is. But you know this question has to annoy them. And in one of those moments, I think, that proves that Jesus really does transform lives, the fishermen don't lie. (laughs) And they yell back to him, no. And this guy yells back, well, you might want to throw the nets on the right side of the boat. Okay, so if they weren't bothered by this guy before then, now for sure they are. I mean, can you imagine what they must have thought or what was going through their heads at this moment? I mean, or what would you be thinking or wanting to say at this moment? I mean, who is this guy? You've got to be kidding me. Does he not know we've been out here all night? It's not that simple, buddy. But for whatever reason, I, I sort of believe just to prove that the guy on the shore really didn't know anything about fishing, they decided to go ahead and throw their nets over on the right side. And in what can only be described as a miracle... It's almost like the fish swim to the net. And there's so many that they can't pull them up on the boat. 153 fish. Now, a lot of people have spent time trying to understand why it's 153. This is what theologians do. They try to you know, figure out, is there some significance to this 100, 153? Is there some hidden message behind the 153? Well, here's my take. It's 153 because they counted them. And these guys were fishermen. It's likely they were to sell these. This, were, these, this mattered. They were going to split them up. There's 153 fish. And I just want to put yourself on the boat there for a moment. And at some point, this is sort of how I picture this. At some point, they're trying to get all these fish up. They're struggling with this. They just seem to be multiplying in the net. And it dawns on John... I think I've seen this before. Water into wine, 
that was amazing. The multiplying, there's this, this sort of feels like the fish in the loaves when we fed the five thousand. And he turns and looks at the shore. The sun has come up more, and he realizes it's Jesus. Now, if you were John at this moment, what would you do? I mean, I can see myself, you know, waving, John, Jesus! Come on, guys, let's get the boat back in there. Maybe even I would jump in the water. But what does John do? He turns to Peter, and he says, it's Jesus. That moment, I don't think we can explain apart from all the disciples feeling the weight for Peter and the needed healing and restoration for him. Peter is so eager to see Jesus. He does sort of what we would think sort of the opposite. He puts clothes on in order to jump in the water. I don't completely understand that, but he maybe just didn't want Jesus to see him like that. He put on the outer garment, jumped in the water, and went to shore, not, did not want to wait on the boat. And when he arrives there, Jesus greets him as he's probably cold in this early morning from being in the water. He greets him with a war- warm charcoal fire. And if you were listening early this morning, earlier this morning to the account of Peter's denial, and if you still have your short-term memory, this may be familiar to you. Because the phrase charcoal fire is only used twice in the New Testament. It's one Greek word. It's only used twice in the New Testament. And it is to describe the warm fire that Peter stood around with the soldiers when he denied Jesus and the warm fire that he stood around with Jesus as he met him at the seashore. And I don't think this is a coincidence. Jesus wants to make sure that Peter doesn't miss the significance of the words that he's about to speak to them. And when the disciples arrive at the shore and they come in with all their fish dragging the net behind them, what would you expect at that point? Okay, let's get down to business. Let's, let's get our, map out our strategy for how we're going to change the world. Not exactly what happened. They ate breakfast. In what is clearly the first ever episode of Celebrity Chef, Jesus cooks them breakfast. I mean, this is, you have to think about this. You know, sometimes I think we struggle seeing Jesus in his perfection of humanity. He is the greatest chef ever. This was the greatest breakfast ever cooked. And they have fish over the charcoal fire. And as they sit around the fire eating together, you just have to wonder what that moment was like as they shared the joy of being back together again, and particularly having Jesus there with them. But what about Peter? As they sat and ate together, did Peter wonder if he should say something? Did he wonder if his relationship with Jesus would ever be right again? Did he sort of sit on 
back just a little bit. Not his normal position of being out in front. I mean, put yourself in his shoes. Where would you start? Put yourself around that warm charcoal fire at that moment. What would you do? How would you express your regret? And I could imagine Peter sort of saying, I'm going to wait till we're all alone. I'll find that bright moment somewhere later. But look at verse 15, and we'll see that Jesus breaks the ice. John writes, when they had finished breakfast, John's there, by the way, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Now, at this moment, you can almost see Jesus waving his hand. Peter had made these bold statements about how he loved Jesus and was more committed to Jesus and would be more loyal to Jesus than the rest of the disciples. And so you can almost see him, that Jesus is saying here, Peter, do you love me more than these guys here? And Peter, his response lacked, response lacked his usual boldness. And he said, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And then he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to, he said to him a third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Can't you just feel the emotion at this moment? In threefold repetition, mirroring the threefold denial, Jesus asked Peter if he loves him. And after Jesus asked this third time, John tells us that Peter was grieved or deeply saddened. And I think the way... John knows this as Peter is, he's broken at this point and likely tears are filling his eyes. We read through scripture like this so quickly we miss that it doesn't happen all this fast. And you can just imagine the pause as Jesus asked him this third time, do you love me? And I wonder if it's this moment where Peter realizes what Jesus is doing. And that there's a reason Jesus has asked him this same question three times. You see, Jesus is forgiving and extending restoration to Peter. And I believe that he wants to make sure this is all happening so that the disciples can see it. Over the years, there has been debate as to whether this conversation took place privately between Peter and Jesus or with all the disciples present. And to be honest, if you read through this account... Uh, the way John has structured it, it's difficult for us to sort through. However, I believe that Peter felt the weight and shame of his visible public failure. And what was needed, the restoration that was needed, was something that must be seen by others. Professor, author Don Carson 
in his commentary on the book of John, he pointed out that Peter had boasted of his reliability in the presence of the disciples. And therefore, he needed restoration to his public ministry also in the presence of the disciples. Jesus wants everyone to know that he's not finished with Peter yet. He's got work for him to do. And from this very beginning, we find this to be true. From the very beginning of the church, we find this to be true, that Jesus builds his church with broken people. You see, this story isn't really about Peter. Yes, Jesus wants to restore Peter. And the story, it's a story where we can all learn that Jesus offers forgiveness and restoration for all. Even those who have publicly denied him and walked away from him. But this story is primarily a story about restoration of purpose. A restoration of a work that Jesus has called Peter to. The work of building the church. You might remember in Matthew 16, Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they responded, well, some say you're Elijah, some say John the Baptist, Jeremiah, one of the prophets. And Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And as normal, Peter was the first one to blurt out, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I forgot that name. Uh, he says, Jesus, Jesus tells him, said, Peter, you're right. And it's on this statement. It's on this moment. It's on you that I will build my church. Now, the interpretation of this verse has been greatly debated over the years. It mainly centers on what this rock is. It's upon this rock that I will build my church. Is it, his con- is it Peter as a person? Is it his confession? Or is it his teachings? Or some combination of all three? But no matter where you land on this, one thing is true from this, that Christ will be about the work of building his church. So when we come to John 21 and we hear Jesus say, feed my lambs, tend my sheep, feed my sheep, he's not just talking about feeding individuals or taking care of people one by one. Now it's certainly no less than this, but he has much, much more in mind. He wants to restore Peter to this work of being about building his church. And in the coming weeks, as we look at what the church looks like as it's taking place, as it's being birthed, we'll see that God uses Peter. And this will certainly be true. He's saying to him, him, I'm not done with you yet, Peter. Now, in this restoration and commissioning, I believe we find three foundational truths Three foundational truths about the church that I don't want us to miss. The first is that the church belongs to Jesus. The church will be messy, and the church will suffer. The church belongs to Jesus. It's hard to miss, but just in case you haven't seen it, Jesus refers to us as my sheep. 
He could have said, feed the sheep, but he didn't want us to miss the fact that the church belongs to him. So just in case you're confused, Christ's community doesn't belong to Bill. It doesn't belong to Kevin, Tom. It doesn't even belong to us. The church belongs to Christ. It belongs to him. Now, unfortunately, in our celebrity-driven culture, we can easily lose sight of this fact and begin to refer to the church by the name of the leader. And I will admit to you, it's one of the things that bugs me. It sort of just gets under my skin. For example, there's this great church in Atlanta, one that I admire, a church that I regularly learn from. The name of the church is North Point. You may be familiar with it. But I most commonly hear that church referred to as Andy Stanley's church. Now, to be fair, I'm sure this gets under Andy's skin just as much as it does under mine. But the bottom line is this, is that it's not Andy's church. The church belongs to Jesus. This is his prized possession. It's his baby. Or maybe we might even more appropriately say, this is his bride. And if we love Jesus, we too will love his church and care for her and protect her and tend to her. So let me just ask you this morning, do you see the church as something that belongs to Jesus? Do you love the church? Now, undoubtedly, some of you have been hurt by the church, and you've experienced pain from the church, and you come here this morning even with just a bit of skepticism, and you're just a little bit standoffish, and it's understandable. But let me just say that you cannot love Jesus and not love his church. Are you caring for her, both the institution of the church and the people who make her up? Are you pursuing the life for, for the church, the life that God designed her to live? And if not, if there's any reservation, if there's anything holding you back, let me just ask you, what is it? Well, I'm guessing that as we think about what's holding us back, it's grounded in the next truth that we see here, and that is that the church will be messy. Now, I know you may not need to see this in the Bible to, to know that it's true, but just to make sure we don't miss it, Jesus picks dumb and stinky, a dumb and stinky farm animal as the metaphor of his people. And we know this to be true, don't we? The story of God, the church, the birth of the church, the building of the church is a story full of messy people. Exhibit A, Peter. Exhibit B, Kevin. Exhibit C, okay, I'll stop there. As the saying goes, if you find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll mess it up. And as much as the messiness of the church may cause us frustrations at times, 
Aren't you glad that God uses messy people? Because deep down, don't we all know what a mess we are? You see, the church is a group of messy people who know that they can't make it on their own. A group of people who know they need a redeemer and who are committed together to encouraging one another to this work of restoration, God's work of restoration in their lives. Hoping for, pointing towards, looking forward to a future day when the messiness will be gone. And as would be expected, this work is always, will always be messy. So let me ask you, how do you respond to the messiness of the church? Are you a person who's quick to walk away, frustrated with the the smell, the dirt, the messiness that surrounds us? Are you one who keeps moving from flock to flock, hoping that at some point you might find some people that are smarter and cleaner? Maybe you find yourself here this morning in the midst of some relational messiness that has you wondering if it might just be easier to sort of wander off. Or maybe you're one of those who just likes to stand back and judge the messiness of the church. And you're neglecting this work that God has called you to, to tend for, to take care of, to actively work for the church, tending his sheep, feeding his lambs. So what's holding you back? Well, I have to admit that if I think about this for very long, I think part of our reluctance is based on this third observation from John's gospel. And it is this, that the church will suffer. Look with me at the text again, starting in verse 18. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, this is Jesus now speaking. He's speaking to Peter. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, when you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted. But when you were old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And just in case we thought that he was just talking about the natural aging process, John puts it in parentheses here. This he said to show by what kind of death he was to glorify God. And after saying this, Jesus said to him, follow me. Jesus is giving Peter a picture of how he will die. He's not just talking about aging here. He's talking about how Peter will be tortured and will die for the sake of the gospel. And he's wanting Peter and each one of us here this morning to know that building the church will not be easy, that we should expect pain and suffering. And it's at this point that many will say, I think I'd rather be involved in the junior league. And that, by, way, by the way, is no intention of bashing the junior league. They do much good. But their founding documents do not include forecasts of pain and suffering and the coming death by martyrdom of some who would choose to follow. And yet, this is exactly what we say, find Jesus saying to Peter. 
You see, John is writing this after the start of the church, after the book of Acts, actually after the death of Peter, a death where Peter was executed for his faith in Jesus. And on a side note, let me just say in my opinion, this is one of the greatest evidences of the resurrection. If you're here doubting that the resurrection was real, can you imagine that prior to this, the disciples were cowards? Peter denied Jesus. He backed down to a servant girl. But after the resurrection, almost all of the disciples were imprisoned, tortured, and murdered because of Jesus. Tradition says that Peter was crucified upside down. And Jesus gives him this picture of this, that he will stretch out his arms, that others will stretch out his arms. Now, I believe nothing explains this transformation from cowards to martyrs except a truly resurrected Jesus that they saw and touched and spent time with. I just have a hard time believing they could keep a lie, that all of them could keep this lie through all of the torture and pain and suffering that they experienced. Surely one of them would have caved. But Peter didn't. It's hard to imagine how he would have served faithfully for three decades with this dark cloud of prediction hanging over his life. But he did. And he wrote about it. In the book of First Peter, he wrote to each of us, telling us how he did it, encouraging us as we would experience it along the way. He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Oh, I didn't see this coming. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And he continues, and if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, he concludes, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. If you are a follower of Christ, it's likely you felt the weight of these words. And at one time or another, you've been insulted for your faith. And it sort of left you wondering if you should just keep quiet. Students, maybe it's that way for you at school. Maybe your friends have known or become, it's become to be known that you go to church. And do you tell them? Do you tell them about Jesus? Do you tell them about your belief? Or maybe I should just stay quiet. Now, Peter's not talking about the suffering we deserve, by the way, or we bring about by our own actions. And don't we know that the church can be guilty of this? 
There are times when our messiness can leak out. And we individually and collectively as a body can make choices that do not reflect the ways of God. And then we sort of just so that we don't have to admit that we made mistakes, we just say, God, people are persecuting us. But this is not what Peter's talking about. He's saying that if we faithfully follow him and are actively involved in the work of building his church, we will experience these fiery trials and receive insults and persecution along the way. And as we do, may we entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. So how do you process this promise of suffering this morning? Are you willing to walk through the suffering? Are you, or are you only looking for a place that will fill you up? that will meet your needs, make you feel better. Well, I'd like to tell you different. But just like he did with Peter, Jesus looked at him and he looks at each of us and he says, this is going to be hard. Follow me. The painful path of suffering that he walks on is also, however, one that is filled with forgiveness and restoration and purpose. And 2,000 years later, Jesus still speaks to you and to me through through the pages of Scripture. And I think he's asking each of us this morning, do you love me? Do you love me? And as we respond, yes, he just keeps saying over and over, tend to my sheep, feed my lambs, build my church. Jesus builds his church with broken people. Let's pray together. Lord, as we pause to pray, I can once again hear the echo of this question ringing loud and clear. Do we love you? Do we love you? Do we love you? Lord, forgive us for the way that our love is so weak and frail and unfaithful. Lord, thank you for forgiveness, the forgiveness and restoration that you provide for us in our lives. Lord, we don't deserve this grace that you extend. And yet you continue to give again and again. Lord, forgive us the ways we neglect your church. Help us to see the tangible and active ways that we can feed your sheep and give us courage to be the people that you've called us to. Lord, I pause to thank you for the people here who are doing the work that you have called them to at Christ Community. I thank you for the faithful pioneers who over the last year have been vested much in the building of your church. I praise you for the way you have taken their efforts, our efforts, as broken people and used them for your good. Lord, may you continue to use, to take these feeble expressions of our love and multiply them for your glory in this community. We pray all of this in the name of the one who came to redeem and restore 
Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.